Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast, and we hope that everybody is having a very, very happy Mother's Day. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. It was the rockiest week on the street in more than a decade as Wall Street concluded the Federal Reserve's efforts at fighting inflation by raising rates by just half a percent are insufficient as worries mount that a recession is on the way. Leading companies reported, including Airbus, Bombardier, Hensoldt, Leonardo, and Rheinmetall, as did space firms, Rocket Lab, SpaceX, uh, Virgin, and more. Chinese air travel has collapsed as Beijing has focused on increasing lockdowns around the country to fight COVID. This as air leases wrote off $800 million in Russian aircraft orders. And on the heels of a problematic earnings disclosure last week, Boeing announced that it would move its corporate headquarters from Chicago to Washington, D.C., prompting questions about the wisdom of the move that will prove distracting and disruptive at a time when the company's management should be focused uh, on bigger problems. And Russia's war on Ukraine continues as America and its allies work to support Kiev while replenishing their own weapon stocks. And to date, COVID has killed at least 997,000 Americans and more than 6.3 million worldwide, although the World Health Organization maintains that that number uh, is uh, 15 million or more. Joining us today, as they do every week to discuss all this and more, are Dr. Rocketron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy here in Washington, D.C. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. It's great to be here, Vago. Thank you. Yeah, it's always a pleasure, Vago. Thank you so much. Highlight of the weekend, Vago. Great to be on. Uh, great uh, to have you guys on, and obviously, happy Mother's Day uh, to all the mothers in, in your lives, and indeed, all the mothers that are in the lives of everybody in our audience. Uh, and before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman sponsors our uh, cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors uh, our coverage of strategy. And check out our two uh, weekly podcasts, Capus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cap and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Uh, again, everybody, thanks very much for joining us, Ron. Uh, start us off, as you always do, most volatile week on the street since 2008, uh, which is uh, not good. Uh, street is unhappy with the Fed for moving too timidly on raising rates, expecting a percent and getting half of that. Uh, volatility index, which we've discussed on this program uh, literally since uh, we began uh, in 2016-2017, uh, 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 is at 3.1, uh, and something that we may actually see double that figure, which would be very not good. Uh, walk us through the week broadly and the performance of the group in particular. Yeah, I mean, volatility really was was the name of uh, the week uh, in the market. You know, we had days where we had swings that were up almost a thousand and down almost a thousand you know, day day to day. Um, I, I think one of the big worries is um, not just that you know the the Fed uh, is, is behind the eight ball, but that we might be even heading into a stagflation environment where. Um, in, in other words, you have inflation and uh, you're, you're not growing, uh, which can be really tricky to try to manage. Uh, so anyway, uh, in, in that backdrop, what did we see? Uh, you know, 10-year yields um, you know, closed the week above 3%, uh, you know, above 3.1%, in fact, 
Um, and that's about as high as they've been since uh, 2018. And they got there very quickly. You know, WTI crude is 110, Brent crude is about 115. Um, so, and like you mentioned, the volatility index is, is, is quite high. Um, so, you know, all in all, it was a, 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 a bumpy week. Now, when you look at the A and Aerospace and Defense Group, um, interesting, the defense names were quite defensive this week. Uh, Lockheed Martin was up 4%, Northrop Grumman was up almost 7%, L3 Harris was up 5%. Uh, Boeing on the week was essentially flat. Uh, Raytheon was up about um, uh, half a percent. Uh, so you saw the defense names being being defensive and kind of, I, I guess, pricing in some of you know what's going on in the world and uh, and, and and the broader market um, being extraordinarily volatile. Sash, I want to go to you to get a, a European uh, view from the city, if you will. Um, what are what are some of the drivers and trends you're seeing, uh, and what are European investors reacting to, and how are they watching what's happening in the states? European investors are watching first and foremost rising interest rates, and second, Ukraine and U.S. is a you know U.S. is clearly important, and uh, European markets typically follow the U.S. in terms of tone day by day. But um, the the broader market uh, issue is. Uh, rising interest rates and um, uh, and Ukraine, and that really did, for our sector, those are the the two drivers of whether that you know the day, let alone the week, is risk on or risk off. So, you know, what's been interesting, the defence stocks had an okay week this week. It wasn't stellar, but it was it was pretty good. Um, you know, most of the defence stocks ended the week flat to up, which given uh, the magnitude of the moves in, uh, you know, on Wall Street during the week, we felt pretty, pretty damn good, frankly. Um, some of the intraday performances were really strong. Airbus, you know, Airbus on, on its results was up 3-4%, um, got above 110 euros at one stage. It gave most of that up on Friday, but, you know, Friday was a pretty lousy ending for the week. Um, Ramtal up, you know, gently on its results. Um, uh, you know, Hensolt uh, came off on his results and, that, you know, and, and then went up again. But, you know, this was a, uh, it, it was a pretty good performance by the standards of what was a lousy performance for, the, uh, for, for markets overall. I think, though, that what is interesting is we're still getting this divergence broadly between the defence plays and the civil aerospace plays. Civil aerospace, uh, aerospace plays, um, the impact on future demand for civil aircraft, and specifically the ability of those aircrafts to be funded by sale and leasebacks, uh, either with lessors or with banks, is very, very dependent, not just on um, the value of the assets, but also just the, you know, the interest rate at which you, you can do that deal. And that's something that I think is starting to really concern uh, investors. Because if airlines can't finance aircraft through sale and leasebacks, they're going to go cap in hand to Boeing and Airbus and say, we want you to provide some sales financing. And all that does is to um, put pressure on balance sheets that neither of the two OEMs uh, particularly wants. So that, that's something that we're starting to see some signs of. Uh, Boeing sort of referenced it a, a week and a half ago. Airbus referenced it you know, vaguely this week. But you know, the experience, particularly from the, um, uh, the 1990s and the period after 9-11, is that when vendor financing increases, it increases massively and very, very fast indeed. And nobody 
and particularly now investors in the in the big civil OEMs wants that. Richard, uh, I want to get your sense on where we're going on air traffic, uh, right? I mean, we've been talking about China, something wrong with China. Now, uh, the lockdown situation is is pretty dire uh, in China, and it is continuing to having uh, global reverberations. Um, you know, first, if you want to talk about anything broader market, uh, go ahead, but also get your sort of air travel update, right? We're going to get to earnings in a minute. Uh, there are a lot of folks who are asking very serious questions about whether, for example, Airbus ever gets to a rate of 75 and whether that makes sense, given what we're seeing from the Chinese market, that's such a, uh, a large um, uh, you know, market for uh, all manner of aircraft, uh, long and, and short haul. Sort of give us, give, us, give us your sense on where we are right now. Yeah, that's exactly the two issues I would focus on this week. You know, one, of course, is the recovery and where China does or does not fit into it. And the other is that Airbus question of 75. Uh, you know, the air travel recovery continues to be pretty good, aside from one of the biggest domestic markets in the world, which of course is China. And that has gone from 99% recovered to, oh my dear God, you know, the numbers for the big three air traffic, um, they are now 77% below 2019 levels as reflects, you know, the lockdown. And that's really super extra horrible bad because uh, you know they were they were sort of leading the way in the recovery and now it's just gone awful. Um, it's important to note that Asia Pacific international traffic, however, has actually showing is actually now showing finally belated signs of recovery. It's still you know it, it's the only market that actually took another hit in 2021 and didn't show any recovery at all. It's starting to show a recovery, so the world the Asia Pacific transatlantic trans-Pacific world is showing signs of learning to live without China, I guess you could say. It's still 93% down, but that's bad. Now, China, the good news is they've shown a great deal of flexibility in getting uh, jets into and back out of and whatever uh, service to cope with you know lockdowns in the past and of course slack demand and then resurgent demand. They're good at that. That the that's the good news. The bad news is how does this end? I mean, they've got a relatively weak vaccine coupled with a, well, problematic zero COVID policy coupled with expectations that they've got to show results before the next party Congress when Emperor Xi is confirmed again for his third and perhaps perpetual term. I don't know how and when this recovers. So it's going to be some time, I think, before we begin to see good numbers out of China. What's the read through with Airbus? Yeah, great question. Um, they, of course, came up with 75 by 2025. Um, I, it's, it's, you know, their biggest single export market, of course, is China. I can't believe this problem won't be solved, no matter how horrible it might look for another year or two by 2025, I would hope. Um, does the ramp go gently as China is delayed in its recovery? That's a great question. A lot of it comes down to the 321 and the ramp in Hamburg, which of course has been the real inhibitor. Um, at you know the annual results, they also delayed the XLR version, which is extremely important till early 2024 for a, a, a redesign issue on, on, on a couple of the, the features of the plane. Um, major other concerns include titanium, but you know it should be noted that titanium imports are actually up. So despite the supply disruption you've seen or we've seen with the Russia disaster, um, it, it doesn't appear to be a major concern just yet, but it might be. Um, and then of course, what's Boeing gonna do? Because so far they're stumbling on the path to 31, 
if they stay at 31 for another couple of years for whatever reason, and meanwhile, the MAX-10 perhaps doesn't get certified, uh, that's another issue, then I, I think the base case becomes 70, maybe even 72 or conceivably 75 by 2025 for Airbus. Airbus is going to accept this challenge and I think uh, put their, their best game to it. Um, we were going to discuss uh, earnings uh, in Airbus in a minute, but we're here. Um, so, Sash, uh, let me give you a bite at that apple, and then, uh, Ron, get yours. Then we can go to U.S. Uh, earnings. Uh, go, ahead, go ahead, Sash. First of all, um, Airbus deserves a degree of credit for producing a, a, a set of Q1 earnings that were, were better than normal. They, were ba- you know, they basically produced good profits in Q1. And actually, profits were so good in Q1 that they had to provide a degree of caution for the rest of the year. Otherwise, I think that all of us, certainly on the analyst side, would have got carried away and raised our forecast by 25%. Um, you know, it really was a very, very strong Q1. Um, Defensive space performed well, which is always uh, in, uh, impressive. But the biggest beat was at commercial uh, aircraft, where um, you had higher volumes. Well, that's always good. More, more wide body deliveries from a very low base, but I'll take that. Be- much better mix, AC21s, as Richard points out, and lower R&D. And, you know, that's a, that, this is how a big civil aerospace OEM should be behaving and should be performing. Boeing, I'm looking at you now. Um, and so that was, a, you, know, that, you know, it was an excellent performance. I, I was very puzzled. We are very puzzled, frankly, by the, the comments on the rate rise. Because when you read the statement, when you listen to the statement, it is much more hedged than it should be. And I'm not just reading, you know, they said the A320 Neo family, quotes is progressing towards a monthly rate of 65 aircraft by summer 2023 in a complex environment. Well, that sounds like slippage well into the second half of 2023 to me. Nothing wrong with that. You know, life is very tough at the moment you know, in, in macroeconomic terms. Frankly, if they got to, to 65 aircraft a month by the end of 2023, there'd still be performing well. And then the next one, which is really interesting, and I quote again, the company is now working with its suppliers and partners to enable monthly production rates of 75 in 2025. I don't think that saying rates are going to be 75 in 25. I think it's saying we'd like to get there. Let's see, see what we can do, which I think is very, very sensible. But I think it was reported in a slightly breathless way. Um, by uh, some of the some of the media and some of the wire service, it, you know, they clearly accept that um, there are higher risks: trading, supply chain, macroeconomic, and they want to get there. But you know, they may not actually hit it exactly on the nail. You know, at, at that particular date. Um, still, again, you know, by comparison with their competitor, this is a company that is performing well, and it's you know, it's acknowledging that there are issues external that it can't do anything about but it's doing what they can do which is what management should be doing which is you know making sure that they make profit on the core bread and butter stuff which is building and delivering aircraft to paying customers uh your sense on uh the numbers and and the conversation that richard rightly said right i mean this is a challenge that goes beyond uh you know an airbus problem it's also a boeing problem and what it means for the boeing boeing line Your, your sense on sort of uh, the, the Airbus uh, figures, but also more broadly, where we're going to be for travel and for orders. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> meet me quickly on the, the Airbus piece, right? I mean, ultimately, it's sort of a zero-sum game, right? So um, if Airbus does get to 75, that probably implies that 
you know, Boeing doesn't get to 75 and is well below that, right? I mean, it's, you, you, you're, you'll see some growth in the market, but you know, not enough growth for both companies to be delivering that kind of, that number of airplanes, right? So it's just share loss, right? From, from Boeing to Airbus. Um, it's, you know, I, I would say sending that signal obviously is positive, right? Because it implies that there's demand in the market for narrow bodies. We all know there is, but you know, it, kind of, it kind of sends that signal. Um, a big piece of all this ultimately is, however, and we've seen this across, you know, the, air, the aerospace and defense world, but across the broader industrial world and outside of our, you know, our, our purview is just the supply chain challenges uh, needed to get to those kind of levels in relatively short order. Um, and that's the part that seems like that's going to be the, the biggest gating factor for uh, rate ramp ups across our, our space, but other industrial spaces is just the, the availability of you know, raw material, transit times, labor, labor prices, inflation, you know the list, but that's going to be probably one of the more important factors if, you know, trying to support these levels or even getting there. Um, those will be, those will be the big, big challenges uh, from, from my, my point. Um, we're still kind of our, our air traffic forecast has been, and we're sticking with it, uh, you know, globally, you get back to 2019 levels sometime in 2023. Uh, and you surpass it in 2024. Uh, and again, the biggest single risk factor of that is, is China. Um, you know, if for some reason uh, it happens sooner, it's because of China. And if it happens later, it's because of China. Uh, the rest of the world seems to be, um, you know, not perfectly tracking in, in the right direction, but you know, almost, right? I mean, it's a little, little bumpy, but it's, everything seems to be going the right way. Um, uh, so uh, that's, that's where we are. And uh, Sash, uh, let me uh, go to you for uh, European uh, earnings, right? I mean, we we saw not just from Airbus, but we saw uh, Bombardier. We've, we've seen Leonardo, uh, Hensold, Rheinmetall. Uh, kind of walk us through what we've been seeing from uh, European companies. Uh, and, you know, you were bullish on Rheinmetall in part because of expendables, right? And that uh, Germany... Uh, is uh, not just going to be spending more money, but uh, there is a drive by all European powers to uh, augment the capability of the Ukrainians in their battle for survival against Russia. Uh, and that uh, I'm sure management discussed all of that as well. Sort of walk us walk us through what the European companies reported. And then, uh, Ron, I'm, I'm going to come uh, back to you to sort of get the handful of stragglers, uh, American stragglers, but also uh, the space sector, uh, and also get your take on Bombardier. And same with you, Richard. Sash, go Ahead. I mean, apart from Airbus, um, and Airbus said relatively little about Ukraine, although, you know, let's be honest, with President Macron re-elected, big Franco-German programs now better funded, even if there are still huge political industrial tensions, hard to believe that Airbus's defence space business is not going to be doing very, very well, well into the second half of the decade and beyond. You know, they're going to be producing Eurofighters for Germany, they're going to be producing Eurodrone, they're going to be probably producing more A400Ms. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a good position to be in. But the, the companies that were really interesting was, well, I mean, there were actually four European defence companies that either had uh, results, Leonardo, Rheinmetall, Hensold, or an AGM statement, which is pretty important at the moment, BA Systems. Um, and with the exception of Rheinmetall, the most consistent message that came out this week was the environment is... Uh, you know, I mean, morally, regrettably, but you know, you got to take that is, is improving. You know, defense uh, customers are coming to defense companies and saying, "What can you do, and how soon can you do it?" 
but none of them are were uh, of suddenly the first three are talking about big upturns in orders anytime soon where anytime soon is defined as being three months minimum and possibly six months and actually the degree to which Hensoldt uh, were, you know, after all, huge exposure to Germany, nearly two thirds of revenues. And they basically said, well, you know, we expect, uh, you know, probably 50 to 100 million euros of orders extra uh, within the next 12 months or so. Well, that's about 5% of revenues. And the shares fell on that because that was really, really negative. BA Leonardo, similarly. Now, you know, Leonardo is actually performing very well in profits terms otherwise, and the shares bounced very nicely there. But, it, you know, there was this consistent thing of, Things should be a lot better for defence companies, but the governments are not actually, uh, you know, putting their, their hands in their pockets, the money on the table and signing the contracts. And, you know, I think managements are, are in many cases saying we'll, we'll believe it when we see it. The single exception to that is Rheinmetall um, for a couple of reasons. Number one, it just it produces munitions. It produces stuff that people fire that goes bang. And that is what is being consumed in huge quantities in Ukraine. European nations are sending all they've got to Ukraine in many respects and then having to backfill as fast as they can. And, you know, if you want artillery ammunition, you've really got to be ordering now. If you want medium caliber ammunition, probably even tank ammunition, you should be ordering pretty quickly. We saw a similar situation with Saab um, uh, a couple of weeks back. What was also really interesting about Rheinmetall, and there are lots of things that are interesting about Rheinmetall, is that Rheinmetall has started doing what I think is unbelievably smart, which is paying now for the working capital, for the stocks that they need to deliver in three, six, nine, twelve, eight, uh, 18 months. Um, they have added 400 million of working capital, 350 million of which is just extra components. There's a lot of nitrocellulose in that i.e. the core component of everything that goes bang, they're just buying it up and storing it. Don't go anywhere near many of their plants smoking a cigarette. It's not safe. But they're carrying a lot of stock, and that means they can deliver munitions much, much quicker. And I think that's the mark of a, you know, management feels very confident about its balance sheet, very confident about its underlying, um, uh, you know, the underlying demand of its product, and it's prepared to take big risks, ultimately the shareholders' cash, to make sure that they are ready on the dot that a government finally says 100,000 rounds of 155 millimeter ammunition, yeah. Um, or, uh, or, you know, we want another 3,000 trucks to actually carry all this stuff. They're able to say, yep, we can do that because we've already bought the parts. Kudos to them. Um, let me, uh, Richard, go to you and get sort of the take on Bombardier. Uh, and then have Ron be able to touch on that and, and give us the rest of U.S. earnings. Um, give you know what did you, what did you make of the Bombardier uh, earnings? Uh, right, a company uh, a company dear to us as a a, a smaller uh, but endeared player in this uh, market. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, you know, a collection of uh, beloved product product lines and uh, and and a proud legacy. And, you know, of course, they spent most of the rest last decade trying very hard to stab themselves in the neck. Uh, they survived that process and in that process of having to sell everything um, to survive as a consequence of that effort at suicide. Uh, they, they've come through and, and they are now the world's only, as Ron has pointed out, the world's only pure play publicly traded business jet prime. And as such, I think you can regard their very strong results as a pretty good indication of the strength of the business chip market. You know, we've got all these fantastic indicators in terms of product pricing, in terms of uh, 
transactions in terms of used yet available for sale, inventory and everything like that. Um, but of course, there haven't been a lot of announcements about raising production rates. Matter of fact, almost none. And this, these results, I think, clearly show that the answer for a lot of people is we're going to get back pricing power because the last decade we'd become effectively just as deflationary an industry as the jetliner business. So the idea of actually getting prices a little higher, getting profits up, as we've seen with these numbers, seems to be paying results. And maybe, just maybe, the next step is raising production rates. So I think this is an interesting harbinger, possibly of things to come, if things stay as good in the business jet market as they've been for the past uh, six months or so. Uh, Ron, I want to go to you. Give us your sense on uh, Bombardier and any of that uh, European news and certainly what Richard said, uh, and also uh, get your uh, sense on uh, you know, whatever straggler American earnings there were. And I know uh, space companies uh, reported Rocket Lab and, and, uh, and Virgin. Yeah, Although so, there was some SpaceX news flow as well, right? I mean, uh, you know, Elon Musk's Twitter move has, you know, sort of concerned investors uh, a little bit, both on the Tesla and on the SpaceX side. Yeah, so just a, you know, a couple of thoughts on, on Bombardier. Um, yeah, Bombardier on their call um, you know, was pretty clear that they were being you know, conservative on, on rates. Um, I think we're seeing that across the board in the, in the business jet world because um, you got to thank the supply chain for that. So uh, currently in you know, business aviation, having a constrained supply chain is your friend because it's going to force companies no matter what to um, not ramp up too quick. So, uh, the, you know, the supply chain woes will uh, most likely uh, cause the industry to get pricing uh, because there will be a shorter supply of airplanes. Um, one of the, the more frequent questions we get from investors on um, the business aviation is, you know, can it stay, how long can it stay this good? Um, and there's fear that, you know, as we go, as you look forward that, you know, we're, we're hitting a peak right now in, in activity, in, in order activity and so on and so forth. And um, you know, generally speaking, when you start thinking about, um, you know, stocks and how things trade, it's you're, you're generally trading on the leading indicators, which would be, you know, order activity, so on and so forth. Um, my sense is it's probably premature to say that right now. I mean, the, the business jet uh, market, you know, business aviation, is a exceedingly difficult market to forecast, right? I mean, at different points in time, you can really correlate it with different things, but forecasting it over a longer period of time, it's a very difficult market to forecast. So saying that it's gonna go one direction or the other with any certainty right now, given, given all the crosswinds we're seeing economically is I think a really difficult call. So, and upturns in the business aviation market tend to last for um, several years, at least historically. Um, so I wouldn't expect it to be all that different this time, but, but we'll see, something to watch. Um, when you look at the, the, the companies that reported uh, this week in, in the U.S., we had um, Huntington Ingalls, Spirit Aerosystems, um, uh, Virgin Galactic, Astra, uh, Airlease. Uh, and if I kind of cherry pick through there, some of the more interesting things. Um, you know, when Airlease reported this week, um, they offered, um, they wrote off all the Russian fleet, right? So they gave a view on, well, how, how, how big is the exposure? Well, we now know the exposure for Airlease in, in Russia was about $800 million, and they wrote the whole thing off. Um, one of the questions when Aircap reported was, well, how big is that exposure? And they sort of gave a squishy answer. Um, for sure, the market will appreciate knowing what that risk is. You know, even, even if they just, you know, they took a big charge, they wrote it off. If they get some value back later through insurance or even get airplanes back or however it's going to work out, 
they can always add back what they wrote off, but they just assume they're all worth zero. So I think that that was notable. Um, Virgin Galactic, when they reported, um, they pushed their launch, their 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 commencement of commercial operations out of 2022 into 2023. They're supposed to be kind of late in 2022, and now it's in 2023. So they moved it a quarter. The market didn't like that at all. And the stock got pretty, hit pretty hard on that. Uh, and then Spirit Aerosystems really got hit hard this week. Um, and a lot of that had to do with their commentary on 737, that you know, seven, their 737 production rates, um, they're saying are going to be at 31 a month for quite some time. Um, you know, that Boeing still has inventory. They still have about 85 or so, plus or minus a couple fuselages sitting around in Wichita that still have to be absorbed in, you know, in the system. And they said something that was you know, honestly kind of surprising that basically their production system and Boeing's production system are completely disconnected right now, which ultimately given how important they are, particularly on that program, but other programs, um, that isn't encouraging to hear. Um, and, and honestly, that's not their fault, uh, but uh, their, their stock did pay the price on that uh, this week. So I think that's prob probably, probably the biggest takeaways. And then, and then finally, on, on SpaceX, who is a private company, but notably, um, you know, the, 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 the team that was up at the um, International Space Station came back on uh, SpaceX equipment this week. And, um, you know, SpaceX really does seem to be um, you know, really driving the charge in uh, in the civil aerospace market. And, you know, from when we started doing this podcast today, there's probably a good, I don't know, maybe 12, 12 or 13 uh, publicly traded public space, publicly traded commercial space companies today. Um, and, you know, that wasn't the case not that long ago. And I really credit um, SpaceX for, um, you know, seeing that and, and kind of really um, being the catalyst for that to happen. Uh, and and indeed, right? I mean, uh, you know, Massey, Maxar, so many of these other companies, uh, Rocket Lab, uh, in fact, uh, in the market, you know, driven by the SpaceX revolution in many uh, cases. Let me let me just quickly ask you about Rocket Lab, right? An H sixty helicopter catching a rocket as it plunges back to Earth without hitting uh, rotor blades, uh, right? I mean, SpaceX has decided to do that uh, with a, a landing uh, lower stage. Um, you know, talk to us a little bit about the Rocket Lab uh, and what that means. And, you know, it's impressive, but is it a bit of an evolutionary dead end if you can get, you know, or, or is it actually the future, right? I mean, is the way SpaceX doing it uh, somewhat more complicated and expensive than having a rocket snag uh, a booster and bringing it down safely to Earth? Yeah, I think it's, you know, I think it's too early to tell. And honestly, I don't, I don't know if I have the expertise to tell you which is better because they're both really complicated, right? And there's nothing easy about what SpaceX does and uh, on a pretty regular basis now. And there's nothing easy about what Rocket Lab did. But what both have in common is reusability. And reusability in space is the future, period, because it, it reduced costs dramatically. And, you know, commercial space and the commercial space companies are kind of all about particularly on the launch side, reducing the cost to get a kilogram of whatever in orbit. Uh, and and, and that, that reduction in cost has really been the catalyst that has allowed um, these more entrepreneurial ventures to, to take place where, you know, if, if you know, if Ron, Richard and uh, Bago and Sash wanted to say, hey, you know what, we got this idea, we could put this in space. Well, if you, you wanted to do that 10 years ago, it would have been really, really expensive. Um, now it's just expensive, not really, really, really expensive. So um, it's it's been a catalyst for entrepreneurial, um, an entrepreneurialism in space. Now, all that being said, what's important is at this point, a lot of these commercial ventures at some point 
come back to the government or a government, not necessarily the U.S. government, but government involvement in space is still an important thing. And a lot of sort of the purely commercial uh, space revenue is in, in, in many markets outside of communications is still just a kind of a, an early stage burgeoning thing. But the idea is you can get the cost down enough. Um, you, you could see things like earth imagery used in many different commercial applications, as an example. Um, I want to uh, shift uh, gears uh, a little bit and um, ask Sash, um, I want to end with the, uh, the Boeing discussion, but I want to talk about the war a little bit. Sash, what phase of the war are we uh, entering? Um, now, right, Russia trying very, very hard uh, by Victory Day to chalk up uh, some some form of of success, uh, and yet that success is proving to be uh, elusive, pretty much because the international community is is helping uh, Ukraine uh, with hardware, with intelligence, as we've seen in news stories that have run over the last couple of weeks. I also want to ask about replenishment of stocks, right? I mean, this is an issue you've been talking about from the beginning, uh, with with Enlaw, the United Kingdom being really ahead of the power curve in supplying this. You know, we've got some news reports that you know the United States has you know, 35,000 or so in inventory. Others will say the number is a little bit larger. Still, we're eating into that inventory by, uh, you know, and, and you realize that in a modern high intensity conflict, you consume uh, munitions with alarming speed. Um, and, you know, we've, we've heard from Greg Hayes at Raytheon about the challenges of getting uh, uh, Stinger produced, uh, the Pentagon working to muster the industrial base to be able to solve uh, some of these problems. And Kath Hicks uh, rightly saying, hey, let's not get focused on the specific eaches, but the capability that allow the Ukrainians to do this. This isn't necessarily about javelins, but what's the other kind of capabilities we can leverage to solve these problems? Talk to us about where the war is going and how seriously governments in Europe are taking the rearmament cause uh, and what they're specifically doing to gear up again, as we saw, for example, in the Libya conflict, where you know France and the United Kingdom and Italy fell short on precision munitions. Okay, so I mean, in general, the war is more focused on the south and the east, so the you know, the battle for the Donbass, than it is uh, than the north, and the slightly more uh, more west. Actually, the Ukrainian forces appear to be uh, counterattacking in the. Uh, in, in the north of the country. And it's entirely possible that if those counterattacks succeed, you know, we tend to be talking about, uh, even they just talk about settlements, which means we're talking about very, very small uh, points on the map. But if they can regain enough ground in the north, fairly soon Kiev uh, becomes out of range of almost all Russian artillery. And that's a, a huge achievement of itself. And um, that would give them significant, uh, you know, space for manoeuvre up around the capital. Down in the Donbass, um, it's much more a grinding battle. Uh, the Russians have still not uh, completed what they hoped would be the, uh, the capture of Mariupol. Um, it may be that that is the triumph that they announce on, on May the 9th, because frankly, you know, they've only got another 36 hours or so. Um, and... Uh, you know, actually, the, the, the two topics you talked about, you know, how goes the war and what's happening about rearmament are very, very linked. Um, where Ukraine is still relatively fortunate at the moment is the concept of getting there the fastest with the mostest, that the replenishment of Ukrainian uh, supplies of munitions, but actually also vehicles um, and probably defense electronics as well, 
is going at least as fast, if not faster, than the Russians are able to regenerate their uh, battalion tactical groups. Um, and there's a fair, you know, there, there, there is some circumstantial evidence, you know, particularly from, uh, you know, Twitter and so forth, that uh, Russia, you know, the, 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 the Russian logistics behind, in particular, their artillery is very, very poor. They, you know, their, their artillery gets lined up in a field, trucks come along, drop off pallets, or not even pallets, sorry, you know, boxes of ammunition or boxes of uh, rockets, and then a whole load of uh, Russian artillerymen just sort of put them all together and, and fire them off. And it's very, very, um, it's very slow, it's very manual. Um, it's, you know, no way is that best practice. The sum of the stuff that is being supplied to Ukraine at the moment, particularly in terms of artillery, is being supplied with the logistic systems required to generate high rates of fire and pretty high maneuverability as well. And if that's the case, that could well uh, significantly help the Ukrainian defences uh, down, down in the Donbass. Um, European governments are still playing it pretty cautious with regards to rearmament. Now, Ryan Mattal was absolutely at the head of the talking about what Germany is uh, looking at. Germany clearly has a shopping list of stuff that they want. It includes huge numbers of uh, munitions of every sort. And we've done quite a lot of calculations of just how much artillery ammunition do you need if you're going to replenish your stocks. And the answer the answer quickly goes into multi-billions, Rheinmetall thinks seven or eight billion uh, euros of ammunition uh, just in the first year or so, and probably, a bit, probably about as much again in uh, 2023. But because Germany is a very, and the German parliamentary process is very, uh, you know, procedurally driven, they actually haven't placed the orders yet. The thing that I was very, very impressed by this week uh, was a press release that came out from the uh, Swedish um, Defence Procurement Ministry, FMV, which said that FMV has come to an agreement with the UK Ministry of Defence to do further development of the NLAW anti-armour munition and basically you know, push the uh, NLAW Mark II into, uh, you know, through its development and into production. It's a very, very dry press release. But actually what that tells us is that, uh, you know, the two countries have, have come to an agreement that this needs to be speeded up. They're providing the funding and therefore there will be a replenishment of NLAWs from UK, Sweden and pretty much anybody else that supplied them to the Ukraine. But here's the caveat. Over the next few years, I don't think there will be a single new end law that flows off the lines in 2022. I really hope I'm wrong, but I don't think so. I think this is a 2023 and, and beyond issue. And that's the issue for almost all complex munitions. The lead times are long and you need that those difficult things called semiconductors, which is what the whole of the rest of the world is looking for as well. Um, Ron uh, and and uh, Richard, I'm going to let you start the Boeing conversation and wrap up on this one. But Ron, what are we seeing from and 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 Richard, if you want to weigh in on this, please do so. Uh, uh, that said, um, what more are you hearing from management of uh, companies, your DoD and congressional sources as well about? Right. I mean, this is a priority issue, as we heard on the Friday podcast. It's a priority issue for lawmakers to get this, you know, to replenish U.S. stocks, replenish weapons, uh, reset, uh, because obviously our Taiwanese uh, uh, partner uh, and ally uh, is going to need 
stingers, right? I mean, stinger production was restarted to uh, help uh, the Taiwanese uh, and indeed a whole series of other munitions, right? I mean, the, the, the where we have always short sheeted our capability is not buying enough, whether it's air defense missiles, whether it's uh, shipborne strike missiles. And we're now recognizing, wow, you know, we'll, you know, in wartime, you shoot off a lot of missiles and, and so demand runs high and it's and they're very complicated and very hard to produce quickly, as Sash just said. Are we are we seeing any motion from your standpoint uh, and and progress to move this needle faster? I mean, let me give the the point of view from kind of the investment community and what we've heard from the companies. I mean, most of the companies that have reported have said, "Hey, you know what? The the demand is is coming. It's just not here yet, right?" So I think they've set up expectations that you'll see some demand um, flow through. It's going to take some time, some you know uncertainty because of you know the process and so on and so forth. So, I mean, I think the expectation in the investment community is, yeah, you'll start to see this happen, some replenishment. There's, we've had some incoming questions about that from investors. So it's something that's on, on investors' minds. But, um, you know, kind of interestingly, uh, the streets being a little bit patient about it because it does seem like the market does understand that the whole defense process, at least in the U.S., takes time to kind of go through the whole thing, if you will. Um, and let me, let me let Richard talk about maybe the, the, the Washington side. Yeah, Richard. Um... You know, what, what are you hearing from folks about addressing this uh, need, right? I mean, because many of the defense contractors are willing to invest their money, but generally have a tendency of waiting for the Pentagon to put the money out for facilitation and framing it. Look, you know, I'm facilitized for X. You want to get me to Y or Z here. You know, it's, it's going to cost you, you know, A or B to try to get to those amounts. Where, where are we on that, on that discussion and how doable is it to surge this capacity the likes of which we will likely have to surge it and surge it kind of across the board, actually. Yeah, you know, I mean, this is an expensive process, and I don't think people have come to terms with the inflationary dynamics here that uh, we've discussed before, but this makes it that much more inflationary. You know, when you want more of something and you want it faster, it's going to cost more. You know, you can talk about invoking the Defense Production Act and whatever else, wartime Defense Production Act and whatever else. That doesn't really change the dynamic. Uh, This simply gets progressively more expensive the quicker you scale up and... I, you know, so far it doesn't appear to be happening any faster than, you know, we've been expecting. That is to say, it's a relatively gentle ramp. I suspect this process has to hasten. You know, I mean, one thing that's also underway is the wholesale swap out of Eastern equipment for Western equipment with a lot of allied nations to the east of Europe. You know, they're basically using this this uh, occasion to, you know, trade MiG-29s for, uh, for, for F-16s, to trade Russian tanks for American vehicles and whatever else. So all of that has to be replaced, too. And this, I think, is a very long game. You know, it, I, I, I just don't think it's realistic to expect the kind of massive you know, 20, 30% year over year leap that some people had originally uh, envisaged for this process. And our last topic, and unfortunately, we've got only about three minutes uh, to do it. And that is to uh, discuss Boeing's decision to move from Chicago uh, to uh, Washington, D.C. I mean, it was a controversial decision at the time that it happened. Uh, As we all uh, remember, Boeing's headquarters in Seattle, uh, McDonald's headquarters, uh, obviously in St. Louis. And they sort of said, "Okay, you know, United is in Chicago. 
and we should be in uh, Chicago. Uh, and there was a sense by some that if you were going to move this headquarters anywhere, you should move it back to Seattle in the in the spiritual home of the company. Uh, but I mean, in in fairness, the chief executive of the company uh, splits his time between New Hampshire uh, and Florida. Washington's in the middle of those two things. And, and indeed, the CFO continues to live in uh, Connecticut. And Connecticut is a little bit closer to Washington than it is to Chicago. Um, you know, uh, Ron, why don't you start us off, Sash, and then Richard uh, finish up whether or not this is the right move at the right time for the right reasons or the wrong move at the wrong time for the wrong reasons. Well, I, I can say this, right? So when the announcement came out, I, I scratched my head and said, well, what's that really do for them? Um, and, and when you think about it, it, it sends a signal to to Seattle that, hey, you know what, we're going to move even farther away from Seattle. Um, that's going to displease uh, both our uh, engineers union in Seattle and um, the machinist union. Um, so I, I would imagine, you know, that that complicates things. Had they announced that they were going to move someplace like maybe in Silicon Valley, Austin, Texas, where you've got a you know big kind of technology community, uh, you, you can say, all right, well, maybe they're moving someplace where there's some smart engineers um, uh, for, you know, personnel reasons. Uh, um, South Carolina, you've got a major fabrication facility there. Um, you know, moving to Arlington, I don't really know what it gets them other than they're closer to Washington, D.C. They're closer maybe to the headquarters of the FAA, but the FAA has regional offices, right? So, I mean, that's really kind of a moot point. Um, and they already have lobbyists on the Hill. I mean, I don't think anybody in this call would say, hey, you know, Boeing is pretty weak at lobbying. I mean, they, that's clearly that's not the case, right? So what do they really get by moving there um, other than adding complication at a time when the company is trying to turn itself around, you know, why would you just throw yet one more thing that complicates things on top of a complicated operational puzzle at the moment? Well, uh, right. Uh, Wes Bush succeeded Ron Sugar, uh, you know, because one of the things that had to be done was to move the company and Wes Bush moved the company. Right. And, and, and so that satisfied the board and, uh, was was one of the things you know what I mean? I mean, so there, there's a whole bunch of reasons why management does these things. Even if, although I will will say from an operational standpoint, Northrop Grumman was not facing the kind of challenges. Yeah, I mean, uh, that, I, I, that yeah, I would, I would I would add that right. I mean, when you or when your primary business is being a defense contractor, and you know, there's the cluster of contractors there. Okay, I, I get it. Um, and Boeing, yes, is a major defense contractor. And is that what we're, our takeaway is that? hey, you know what, that we're going to focus more on defense and commercial will be kind of the second fiddle to defense. And if that's the case, that's sort of a huge turnaround at the company. And honestly, if you look at, hey, what they reported last quarter and how their defense portfolio is positioned right now, I don't know if that's a move I'd want to make. Indeed. Um, Sash, uh, get your take. And then uh, Richard, uh, wrap us up on uh, the program today. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, I look, comparisons are invidious, but... Um... Airbus did exactly the opposite thing five years ago. They had a they had headquarters in Munich and Paris. Um, Paris was incredibly important, or perceived to be incredibly important, because that was that gave them, you know, political access and uh, regular political access to the French government, which was then and remains a very very major shareholder as well as a stakeholder in Airbus. Airbus moved the whole down lot to Toulouse, right by, right by and in the commercial air, aircraft business, because the commercial aircraft business is the most important business for Airbus, and they wanted management to be able to uh, 
uh, run that with as few layers as possible, as efficiently as possible, and be as close to the customers as possible. Um, it seems to work pretty well for Airbus. Go figure. <laughs> go, go figure. <laughs> right there is packed the wisdom of the ages, uh, Sash. Uh, Richard, um, your, your thoughts as we uh, uh, bring the program uh, home. You know, it just seems like a colossal missed opportunity if they had said, look, we're clearly in need of improving our commercial unit. We've gotten distant from our engineering and technical excellence roots. Uh, we're moving the headquarters back to Seattle because Chicago is superfluous and our Washington, D.C. presence is already truly world class. We're going to focus on building products rather than, you know, selling stuff being via lobbying. I think that would have sent an incredibly powerful message, especially when, you know, frankly, they're stuck in second gear with 31 per month and Airbus is eagerly and aggressively zooming to more than twice that. Um, they didn't do that. <laughs> you know, the only thing that I can think that's remotely positive here, if you could call it that, is the establishment of an R&D hub in Northern Virginia. You know, that implies some kind of attention to the technical side of things. But this is arguably the most inflated part of the world to develop an engineering and technical center. So I'm not even so sure about the wisdom of that relative to putting more technical people in Seattle, St. Louis and Seal Beach and wherever else. So the whole thing was just kind of a disappointment, frankly. Um, let me just uh, quickly, and, and Ron actually will get uh, get the last question on this because he is actually the PhD engineer in our midst, right? Um, do the, you know, I mean, Boeing closed its innovation hub uh, in uh, Seattle, um, right? Um, in, in part sort of transmitting, that kind of function is not that important anyway. How important are these, are, I mean, you know what I mean? Everybody wants to highlight, like, we have an engineering R&D center in wherever, um, oh, look at us. We're in Silicon Valley. I don't know. That, that, are these centers really that important, you know, and replace good old fashioned bread and butter engineering prowess in your company uh, in Seattle, in St. Louis? Um, I mean, you know, does, does it matter if you have it, 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 it depends, something right? at near Caltech? I mean, it, it, it depends um, ultimately, right? Um, uh, Raytheon Technologies, right? You know, United Technologies had, had, has United Technologies Research Center. They kept it, right? I mean, that's something they could have easily ejected um, through all the, you know, the, the, the spins and mergers and acquisitions and they kept it. And it's a, an important technology generation um, center for them. Uh, other companies don't have that. McDonnell Douglas back in the day had McDonnell Douglas Labs and um, they, they shut those down. So I think it depends. You know, GE aircraft engines doesn't have a lab, but they've got, as you, as you framed it, um, kind of, you know, good old fashioned engineering in on the programs. So I, I guess it depends on, uh, on how you, you, you approach it. But I, uh, the point I, I was trying to make is just moving farther away from where you're doing engineering and focusing more on, you know, the, the selling and lobbying and that, that just doesn't send the message that we are really focusing on engineering. I mean, maybe, you know, I'm, I'm interpreting it wrong, but, um, you know, by moving to an area where there's a high concentration of technical people, um, that can't be a bad thing. However you think about it, it just can't be.
All right, guys, uh, thanks very much. Uh, happy Mother's Day uh, again uh, to uh, your uh, the important mothers in, in your lives and indeed to our whole audience. Thanks so very much for joining us. Uh, hope everybody has uh, a great weekend, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so very much. Yeah, great to be here, Vago. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks so much, Vago. Always a pleasure. Yeah, really enjoyed it a lot, Vago. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.